Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Aid arriving, countries send oxygen to India as COVID cases mount. Bitcoin bump, crypto gains help drive Tesla to record profits and fund fiasco. The Archegos collapse cost banks over $10 billion. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. It's great to be with you as always. It's also great to see the global community joining India's battle against COVID-19. The first shipments of life-saving medical aid from the United Kingdom have just arrived. France, Russia and Mexico have all announced offers of aid too. And China urging its private companies to provide assistment, assistance on top of that. We'll discuss what's happening and what more is needed with the president of the Public Health Foundation of India coming up on the show. Now, Help for India comes as global COVID cases rise for the ninth straight week. The United States announcing plans to ship its supply of unused AstraZeneca vaccines. And we're talking as many as 60 million doses to other countries to help ease the crisis for now. It's a busy day on global markets with U.S. stocks beginning the session at records, driven by optimism over the pace of reopenings in the United States. But of course, that's increasingly matched by concerns over things like labor shortages, overheating and inflationary risks, too. That's something that the Federal Reserve will have to tackle in their Q&A session tomorrow amid ongoing speculation, of course, about when they will start to reduce support. I can tell you, not now. It's not happening any time soon. Stocks remain near record highs in Europe too and a cautious session across Asia followed. Germany and Japan both raising their growth estimates for this year. A stark contrast of course between emerging markets and developed markets but that's what's happening with the vaccine rollouts. Let's get to the drivers. Heartbreaking scenes in India as a further 2,800 people are lost to the pandemic. The overwhelming numbers have meant that many grieving families are now forced to say goodbye to loved ones at makeshift crematoriums. Verikit Kasud has the story. These raging fires will continue all day and through the evening. The surge in case has been so much that there's a waiting really for these bodies to be put on the pyre by family members. There's a queue outside just waiting for the final rites to end for a family member who has died of COVID-19. Body after body being brought into this crematorium in India's national capital, New Delhi, that has seen a huge surge, not only in cases, but in fatalities as well. Family members pulling out bodies such as this one from ambulances lined up in this crematorium ground and taking them for cremation. They've grown up with these people, they've lived with them, and now it's time to say their final goodbye. My uncle died at about 11.15pm on April 24th. The hospital didn't inform us. When we called the help desk, we were told he's no more. One of the most heartbreaking scenes I witnessed was when a 27-year-old was picking up the ashes of his 49-year-old mother. His brother is still in hospital recovering from COVID-19, while his father has just got home after recovering from infection. I'm standing right behind another crematorium, this time in South Delhi. What you can see is about 50 people at work here. 
they're trying to get 100 platforms ready. This is going to be a makeshift crematorium because of the increase, the exponential increase in fatalities. We believe that this makeshift crematorium should be ready in the days to come. I'm standing outside a COVID emergency ward at a top hospital in New Delhi. It is here that a lot of people have been coming and almost begging for beds and oxygen for their loved ones. If you look at all these cars starting from here, almost a dozen of them parked right outside this emergency ward. They're asking just for beds and oxygen, which they have been denied as of now because there are no beds available, according to officials inside this hospital. They're all people here old women, old men, there are even younger people who are gasping for breath in these cars. They're just waiting for that one lucky moment where they get a bed inside this facility. I brought my father here. There are no beds. There are people, those are in the corridors, lying on the floor. And the very first question says that show your RT-PCR test. What is the infection rate? Uh, am I carrying oxygen cylinder? To which I wasn't aware of. I thought this is what the hospital would provide. Relatives of patients who are suffering from COVID-19 have been waiting for ambulances also to take them home. But these ambulances have been so busy getting patients here or to crematoriums that it's been extremely difficult for them to get their sick ones home after being denied a bed. Vedika Sood, CNN, New Delhi. And this is India reports more than 323,000 new cases today alone. The United States now saying it plans to share millions of doses of AstraZeneca vaccines with other nations, including India. Ivan Watson joins us now with more. Ivan, I know you were watching that too. It's, it's kind of unbearable to watch. And I can't help but looking at what we were hearing there in terms of numbers and wonder if we aren't underestimating both caseloads and lives lost. Uh, every expert you talk to in India who, who looks at this data uh, says that the numbers are, are much lower. Uh, Tuesday's numbers officially of, of new COVID cases uh, came down uh, a bit lower than Monday. There were 323,000 new cases, uh, according to official figures, some 2,700 people who died. But the experts that we've been speaking to are saying, even in good times, without a pandemic, that the number of deaths in India are, are miscounted, are, are below normal counts, and the cause of death also does not accurately uh, reflect the, the real causes of deaths on the ground. And this was echoed by the World Health Organization's chief scientist. Take a listen to what she had to say. The actual number of people who've had the infection as measured by antibodies is at least 20 to 30 times higher than what had been reported. Now, while um, the testing capacity of India has increased dramatically, they're doing, I think, close to 2 million tests a day. That's still not sufficient because the nat national average now, I think the positivity rate is about 15 percent. In some cities like Delhi, it's, it's up to 30 or percent or higher. So, for example, Julia, one statistician and doctor that I spoke with uh, a short while ago said it's probably could be five times higher the death toll from COVID right now from what we're actually seeing in official figures. Uh, but there still needs to be a lot more work. To, there's a lot more work to be done while the, the healthcare system is barely coping with the sheer numbers of new infections. Now, we are seeing a reaction from uh, different state governments that are trying to respond to, to the surge of new cases 
cases in this deadly second wave. Uh, the states of Punjab, for example, and Karnataka in, imposing uh, nighttime curfews and, and weekend curfews to try to to try to kind of reduce the the, the spread uh, and, and the increase that we're seeing. And we're also starting to see uh, the international aid starting to arrive. Uh, for example, a shipment coming from the UK arriving and announcements that that aid is going to be coming not only from the US, but from the European Union, sending in uh, oxygen, remdesivir, uh, oxygen generators. Uh, the New Delhi government saying that it is ordering oxygen from Thailand and is accepting aid coming from, from France as well. And this is so vital because, as you just saw in my colleague Vedica's report, uh, every bed, every uh, uh, tank of oxygen can make the difference between a life saved and lost in this crucial time. Julia. Yeah, that aid can't come soon enough. Ivan Watson there. Thank you so much for that report. All right, let's move on. Tesla's earnings topping $1 billion for the first time ever as the EV maker posted record profit for the third quarter in a row, as well as producing record production and deliveries. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, the market reaction to this was interesting. You can hit a record, at least in terms of numbers, but it's how you hit that record that matters. And when you look at the amount of money that they used or bought in as a result of um, tax credits and Bitcoin profits, suddenly mm -hmm. uh, profitable numbers look very different. Yeah, this was the really interesting small print. And it was very small print, Judah, uh, in this earnings report. Uh, on the numbers overall, revenue was up 74% year on year, down a little bit uh, from the previous quarter, though. They've had some serious issues with supply chain, the chip shortage, uh, the port capacity uh, issues. But then look closer at the profitability, 438 million in net profit in the quarter, of which a positive impact, 101 million came from sales of Bitcoin. The company spent 1.5 billion on Bitcoin in the quarter. They then liquidated 10% of that, and that was hugely profitable for them. So a, an extraordinary situation where Bitcoin contributed almost a quarter of the company's profitability. And then you look at environmental credits, which is where Tesla earns extra credits for sort of beating uh, carbon emission targets. It can then sell those to other automakers. It made more than 500 million uh, in terms of contribution to revenue in the quarter. So that was another contributor to profitability. So look, a, a serious achievement still for this company, the seventh straight profitable quarter, but definitely worth looking at the small print. And I th think that's what the market's doing this morning. Yeah, so actually a, a record quarter of profits was actually a loss, just to be clear. We'll just let that sit there. Right. <laughs> Talk to me about chip shortages, because I did see that Elon Musk and the CFO suggested they could hang around for a year or so. Yeah, he did say they would continue at least into the second and third quarter. He called this year some of the most difficult supply chain challenges that we've ever experienced in the life of Tesla. And you and I know that Tesla has experienced production challenges in the past. He said uh, that, well, the CFO also said that they, they, they've seen costs go up as a result of this, not just the chip shortages, but the port capacity, what he called high expedite costs. Uh, obviously, people having to spend extra money to get product in faster. And we know that Tesla did have to pause production at its California factory briefly in February. This has been rippling across the auto industry. Tesla is clearly not immune to this, uh, and it will be something that, that continues to be out of their control uh, as they go forward, compounding the fact that this company is trying to grow. Don't forget their building factories in Berlin and Austin. They're trying to scale uh, in in, in, um, in China, rather. So, so a serious supply chain issue to be contending with at a time of high growth like this. Yeah, chip shortage is not the only issue, to your point as well. That critical relationship with China is going to be so important 
for uh, deliveries and manufacturing going forward. Claire Sebastian, Bitcoin specialist as well as, because we're talking Tesla, of course. Great to have you with us. Thank you. All right. So from a $1 billion profit-ish to a multi-billion dollar loss. We're talking $10 billion, in fact. That's the hit that Wall Street has taken due to the collapse of Archegos Capital. UBS, the latest bank to reveal its exposure, a worse than expected loss of over $770 million. Paula Monica has been keeping tally for us. Nomura also caught in the web here and announcing their loss today as well. Yeah, Nomura's loss is much bigger than expected, Julia, about $2.7 billion or so. I believe we have a chart that shows all of the big investment banks that have taken a hit so far. And if you look at that, Credit Suisse has really been hammered by this, a $5.5 billion. So, uh, you know, the majority of the Archegos losses are tied to Credit Suisse. We've seen some executive shakeups there, management moves as a result of this debacle. And it's really shining a light, Julia, on the murky business of family offices. These wealthy individuals who are running their own money, they're not as regulated by the SEC as mutual funds and hedge funds, pension funds. And we've seen this blow up because they made bad bets that went wrong on huge media stocks like Viacom, Discovery, and some Chinese internet companies. And all of a sudden, big banks are taking a hit because of it. This is such a great point, Paul, and I think in, our audience need to understand this is not an ordinary hedge fund. It was a family office. This is what we're talking six trillion dollars worth of assets around the world of wealthy families that are, to your point, lightly regulated and perhaps more trusted by the banks as well, because these are important relationships. What do you think the regulators need to do if they look at this and understand how do we prevent this kind of thing happening again? Because it's not just the onus on the banks to make sure this doesn't happen again it's the regulators too no definitely i mean obviously the banks themselves need to do a better job of analyzing their own books and their portfolios and realizing that if these family offices have these highly levered bets on a select group of stocks that might not be the best thing in the world but putting that aside yes i think the regulators need to realize that they can't just let family offices do whatever they want because they're not hedge funds or mutual funds. If they have the potential to blow up small portions of the market and then that has a ripple effect, then it really behooves the SEC and other regulators to step in and try and come up with new rules to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again, that there are more stringent guidelines and, and risk practices put into place. Yeah, and banks find that they're all on the other side of the trade and all can't get out when they need to. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Turkey is imposing a nationwide lockdown to try and contain a severe COVID outbreak. Starting Thursday, people will have to stay indoors except for essential reasons. All intercity travel will require advanced permission and schools will need to move classes online. The measures will be enforced through the rest of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan and are due to end on May 17th. As Brazil reels from a deadly new wave of COVID-19 cases, the health minister has admitted vaccine shortages mean some people may not get their second dose on time. Meanwhile, Brazil's health regulatory board unanimously rejected Russia's Sputnik vaccine, citing a lack of information on its safety and efficacy. 
And later today, U.S. President Joe Biden is expected to announce new guidance for vaccinated Americans wearing masks outdoors. Mask wearing has been a contentious topic since the start of the pandemic. The new guidance may also lay out more of what people who are vaccinated and even those that aren't can now do. Okay, so to come here on First Move, the ultimate reward for a shopping splurge, the startup that lets you earn Bitcoin while you buy. And mind-bending, the Nasdaq-listed biotech that says hallucinogenic drugs hold the cure for mental health illness. Stay with us. That's all coming. To first move, a quiet open on tap for the Wall Street majors with the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq set to inch further into record territory. That's the picture as we speak. All-time highs driven by a pretty scintillating start to earnings season with more than 80% of companies beating expectations so far. Package delivery giant UPS posting a 27% revenue rise today as online shopping trends strengthen even with the reopenings that we're seeing. Its shares set to rise, as you can see, over 9% in trade today. Alphabet and Microsoft kick off big tech earnings season later today. Also, Apple reporting tomorrow. And Apple also rolling out a software update this week that makes it easier for users to opt out of sharing data with advertisers. If you remember, it's a feature that Facebook has said could negatively impact its business. In the meantime, more global pharmaceutical giants offering support for COVID-stricken India today. Gilead donating almost half a million doses of an antiviral drug. Merck, meanwhile, sending India some $5 million worth of emergency equipment. And this all comes as much-needed aid from other nations begins to arrive in India. A number of governments are scrambling to send oxygen, ventilators and other supplies to help save lives. Dr. Srinath Thareddy is president of the Public Health Foundation of India and he joins us now. Dr. Reddy, fantastic to have you on the show with us. I think your role as the foundation there, you have a, a very good sense of what the capacity constraints are in the healthcare system in India. Can you give us a sense of what these supplies will do to help save lives today? Well, certainly, uh, both as a gesture of uh, global solidarity and uh, also bringing some essential supplies in a time of need, uh, these are very helpful indeed. Uh, of course, the major challenges that we do have are on the ground in terms of hospital beds, uh, the immediate availability of oxygen in adequate amount uh, to the various hospitals, and uh, the shortage of uh, healthcare workers who are battling bravely but still are running short of numbers given the surge of cases. Uh, these are some of the challenges. But getting uh, some of the oxygen generators as well as uh, essential drugs and other equipment uh, from other countries is certainly going to be very helpful. We were just showing some of the numbers here and they're eye-watering. 323,000 COVID cases reported today alone, a further 2,800 lives lost. Dr. Reddy, in your understanding, do you think that the numbers are being underreported in terms of cases? I, I'm showing a chart on the screen now that shows a straight line upwards in terms of cases too. Do you think we don't really have a sense of how bad it is? Well, it's very likely that the cases are underestimated because even if we test everybody who is to be tested, we know that uh, the testing actually gives only 60 to 70 percent positivity rates. And surely not everybody who needs to be tested is being tested at this point in time. 
despite very large testing numbers overall. Uh, so we are definitely undercounting. And uh, unless we test much more, we'll still not be able to find out even what, what the, how close we are to the number. Uh, however, it's the deaths which were more certain in the past year where the undercounting would have been much less. This time, the surge has resulted in a number of out-of-hospital deaths, and it's difficult to certify them, and therefore the deaths too are being undercounted this year uh, substantially, and that is a cause for concern. The government was criticised in and during the first wave for locking down too comprehensively and perhaps doing too much. And I think there is those that look at this and say actually that it made the government reluctant in this second wave to react quickly with lockdowns. Is that the only answer here? More stringent lockdowns, preventing elections, religious festivals, people meeting for birthdays and families. A lockdown is required to try and suppress cases. Well, we need a coordinated countrywide containment, but because the outbreak is affecting different parts of the country differently in terms of intensity at this moment. Uh, perhaps the states which require a full lockdown or a partial lockdown would be different than those which may require it maybe a week or two later. So we'll have to have that assessment locally done in a large country. But nevertheless, other containment measures of preventing super spreader events of large gatherings, getting everybody to wear a mask and wear it properly. All of these have to be across the country. Travel restrictions as well, uh, closing. I think we've lost Dr. Reddy there. We'll try and reestablish connection, but um, for now, oh, Dr. Reddy, can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. Ah, we just lost you briefly there. You were just talking about the need for more stringent lockdowns, but in specific areas. Do you think those local governments are failing in not taking action swiftly to lockdown, even in those specific localities? Well, some of the local governments have already started doing that uh, over the last week, and then some of them have extended it uh, this week as well. Uh, the state of Karnataka went into a lockdown yesterday. So um, I think some of these decisions have been taken a bit late, uh, but nevertheless, I think there is uh, urgency now in several states to try and contain the pandemic, uh, both by way of lockdowns or near lockdowns and considerable restrictions on travel as well. But it is important that we get both the policy action as well as the public uh, precautions in terms of masking into full play across the country. Do you think people understand that? Do you think people now, in the face of this crisis, realise that they need to take measures to protect themselves? Because for those people who are in India and are suffering at this moment and watching, Dr Reddy, what's your advice to them to help protect themselves? Well, we now know that it's not just droplet spread, but also spread by aerosols. And then, therefore, ill-ventilated places can particularly become very dangerous areas. And, and with the virus spreading so fast, and particularly with three variants on the prowl infecting even with greater ferocity, it is absolutely essential that...
I think we've lost him there. I'm going to thank him because uh, I'm afraid we will get him back and lose him again. That was Dr. Srinath Reddy, uh, president of the Public Health Foundation of India. We thank him and we'll be back after this with the market open. Welcome back to First Move and a fist pump there at the New York Stock Exchange. We've got fresh all-time highs for the Nasdaq and for the S&P 500 as investors await key earnings from Microsoft and Alphabet later today, as well as Fed Chair Jay Powell's latest economic update tomorrow. All eyes on that, of course, too. Tesla shares under a bit of pressure despite posting record earnings and a more than 70% rise in Q1 sales. Elon Musk says EV demand, electric vehicle demand, is at its highest ever for concerns over what contributed to that earnings beat. More than $100 million of those profits coming from the sale of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin trading near $55,000 once again today amid reports that JP Morgan is set to roll out an actively managed Bitcoin fund later this year. Bitcoin's market cap once again above $1 trillion, just as a marker point. Now, as the Coinbase IPO cements crypto firmly in the spotlight, one of my next guests says the Bitcoin rewards operator Lolly will be the next Coinbase. Now, whatever does that mean? Well, unlike Coinbase, which is an exchange, Lolly members who make online purchases get rewards in portions of Bitcoin. Over a thousand retailers are taking part and its founder says it's a great way to get a foot in the crypto door. We're joined now by Alex Edelman. He's the CEO and co-founder of Lolly and Alexis Ohanian, who's the founder of 776. And of course, Reddit. Alexis was an early investor in Coinbase and just led Lolly's last funding round, which was also backed by Serena Williams Venture Fund. Wow, that was a lot of information. Guys, great to have you on the show. Alex, I'm going to start with you because I feel like we've been on this journey with you. You talked to us over two years ago when you were just starting out. Just talk to us what the latest rise in cryptocurrencies has meant for users on the platform. Yeah, it's been amazing. Uh, we've seen uh, record-breaking growth for the last six months consecutively. Um, so more and more people are coming into the Bitcoin space and they're finding Lolly as an easy way to earn Bitcoin instead of invest in Bitcoin. So as you know, we work with over a thousand top merchants and our users can earn every time that they shop at those merchants. So it's been, it's been a really amazing uh, bull run. Um, and I think that it's just getting started. Alexis, tell me what you saw in this and why you think it's um, the next Coinbase and explain what you mean well, by that. <laughs> you know, I was I was very fortunate to have been uh, in the seed round of Coinbase, Coinbase back in like 2012 when crypto was very, very early. It's clear to me now, especially post their IPO, uh, the user experience of crypto is what's going to define this next sort of five years of its growth and creating an on-ramp as efficient as Lolly is, I think, going to be a big part of helping crypto get to the heights of mainstream adoption we think it can get to, because it's not about do you have enough money to invest? It's simply do you want to save money buying things you're already buying online uh, and then get that money back in Bitcoin? And, and that user experience means a lot. Yeah, some would call this a no-brainer. But how do you judge value and valuation in the crypto space? And we can bring it back to Lolly, but just broadly, Alexis, mm -hmm. I mean, Coinbase investing in, in 2012, that was a dis different prospect altogether. But today, value and valuation. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're the, the advantage of being an early stage investor is regardless, you know, 10 years out when these companies 
have their liquidity moments, you kind of look back on that early stage investment and think, wow, like there really is no value investing in early stage venture because at the end of the day, um, you know, a lot of this is dictated by uh, the sort of running market trends. We now have some great public market comps with companies like Coinbase. And, and just generally, the, the momentum that we've seen around crypto now means that a company like Lolly, uh, you know, I, I, I think is, is, is on a path to, uh, to, to a lot of growth. And, and we feel really fortunate to have been as early investors as we are. Alex, just talk about it for our viewers that may not have remembered the interview that we did. This is where people can go on all the participating retailers. They can buy products that they would be buying anyway. And it's an effective cash back. But the cash in this case is Bitcoin. I mean, if I look at some of the cash back receipts that you can get with um, some of your competitors in that space, the rewards that people have got from Bitcoin over this period of time is multiple times that. <laughs> yeah, I think since we were first on the show, um, uh, Bitcoin has 12x or maybe even 14x uh, since we were first on. Yeah. So any any of these users that ha have uh, come on board and, and expected to you know earn something similar to cashback, uh, many of those purchases have actually paid for themselves uh, with their Bitcoin rewards. So that's been great to see. And uh, we just actually passed 250,000 users, and we've given out over 3.5 million in Bitcoin rewards to date. So people are earning real money, and it's growing rapidly because of the rise of Bitcoin. I mean, you initially talked about this as an on-ramp to crypto, and I think you've both sort of suggested this is what's so great about this prospect. Who are your users? Just give us a sense of who actually is being introduced in your mind to the crypto space and to Bitcoin specifically as a result of using this platform. Yeah, so, so a lot of our users are, are new to Bitcoin, new to crypto. Um, we definitely have some people who have already used Coinbase before, but the vast majority now have never had crypto before, and they're seeing Lolly as a risk-free way to actually get into the Bitcoin space. Uh, we have about 70% male user, 30% female, um, and then we have, uh, it's a very young demographic, so it's around 18 to 30, um, which is great for a lot of these advertisers who want to reach a new demographic um, that might not be a coupon or cashback uh, user. Um, a lot of these, uh, part of why the 30% uh, is interesting, 30% female users interesting, is because previously about 4% of all crypto users were female. So we're dramatically increasing uh, the amount of female users in, in the crypto space, which is, I think is very important for financial inclusivity and giving this, this next uh, group of assets um, make it more accessible to everybody. Alexis, talk to me about potential IPO for this one. I mean, Coinbase is like, what is it, eight or nine years? But the appreciation, if we can call it that, of crypto is very different today. Yeah, we have uh, <laughs> we have we have no IPO plans on the near term horizon, uh, but uh, but we're we're quite excited about Lolly's growth and and think there's there's a lot of room to run here. And I think just having more of this accessible uh, in the public markets is good for the space overall. And like I said, I think the, the, the broader mission of Lolly to bring more inclusion, uh, not just women, but just, just more people into crypto, uh, the better. How do you look at regulation of this space, Alexis? Do you see it as a risk? Do you see it as a benefit? Because this is one of the big unknowns. For all the benefits, and you talk about financial inclusion, you hear Jay Powell, for example, we hear the Treasury Secretary warning about the risks of fraud. I do still think there's a a significant misunderstanding about the space and concerns about the space too from people that haven't invested and volatility yeah, for those that have i think 
I, I think there's there's absolutely uh, it, it is important here uh, for <laughs> a very light touch. Uh, and I think it's really clear that with more and more mainstream financial institutions looking to satisfy demand of their customers by finding ways to get them invested in, in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Uh, I think at the end of the day, people want a great user experience. And, you know, you talked about currency fluctuations and, and yeah, that is that's been a real part of crypto for a very long time. However, we sort of take for granted in uh, in in many countries in the West, you know, the United States and, and Britain, uh, a sort of stability of currency. But there are lots of people for whom the volatility of crypto is actually really appealing compared to the volatility of the currency in their home state. And uh, and I think this will continue to improve over time. And I, I think I hope the U.S. government acts in a way that that really makes sense um, and that doesn't stifle innovation and that continues to give more and more opportunity to more and more Americans. Uh, and to your point, the ability to cross borders as well in certain nations, too. Um, yeah. Alex, yeah. Alex, what about the prospect of adding other cryptos, not just Bitcoin rewards here, but other growing digital assets, Ether, for example. Thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I think Bitcoin is, is the, uh, has already served its value to society. Uh, it's not going anywhere. Uh, it's extremely important uh, for the world to understand what Bitcoin is. Um, when we survey people who don't have cryptocurrency, uh, very few understand or know what uh, Ethereum is. And I think even fewer actually want it. Um, right now, Bitcoin is in extremely high demand. It's very important for people to understand what Bitcoin is and why it's so important. And so it's our duty to spread Bitcoin to as many people as possible. Um, over time, if there is demand and uh, Ethereum continues to develop as a you know, potential store of value or as a money, uh, then you know, we would be open to considering um, offering other cryptocurrencies. But right now, Bitcoin is the most important. It's extremely important that everyone understands it and attempts to own it. Um, and we think people can do that very easily through Lolly. So no plans to add Dogecoin or Doggycoin, depending on what you uh, <laughs> what you want to call it at this moment. Just checking, Alex, just checking. No Dogecoin um, yet. No, no, yet, so though, you notice you agree. kept it open. <laughs> yeah, um, keyword. Yeah. Alexis, just very quickly, um, are you still an investor, by the way, in Coinbase? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I did, I, I transferred a few of my shares over to Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights Foundation. Um, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of work with some of the money there, but the, the vast majority is still still there in Coinbase stock. It's still in, in my possession and I'm holding for the long term. Yeah, in for the long run, like Lolly, it seems. Guys, great to have you on the show. Look forward to um, tracking progress. Alex, Alexis, thank you once again. All right, up next, something a little trippy. I speak to the CEO of the newest NASDAQ member about using psychedelics to treat addiction and anxiety. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Leading psychedelic medicine company MindMed began trading on the NASDAQ just moments ago. The biotech company working on a pipeline of medicines based on psychedelic substances, including LSD and MDMA. It says microdoses of hallucinogenic drugs could treat mental health issues, including anxiety, addiction, and ADHD. Joining us now is JR Ron. He's founder and CEO, co-CEO of MindMed. JR, fantastic to have you on the show, and congratulations. 
by the way, on today's listing, there will be people watching that are thinking, what on earth is this company doing? Just explain to me what the focus is for MindMed. Well, I think most people, Julia, look at us and see three three letters, LSD, at least yes. most of the venture capitalists did in, <laughs> in the beginning days of MindMed. Um, but the reality is, is we're a mental health company. Uh, we're treating a very, very big problem in the United States that is now affecting 40% of Americans in either having some form of a mental illness or an addiction during the pandemic. And so psychedelics are just the catalyst to, to really look at this space entirely differently. I mean, what caught my attention when I was reading about you was a phrase that you used, and it was that you were hoping to create an anti antibiotic for addiction. The use of the word cure, I mean, without being too complicated with the chemistry, how does this work? Because again, to your point, when you hear LSD, the last thing you think is that's going to help someone with mental health no. issues or with addiction. So how is the science actually going to work? Because it has to be about the science. Well, completely. And, and for some of the programs that we're working on, we're, we're working with what we call psychedelic assisted therapy. And the two words at the end are very important to remember. These are psychedelics are not going to be panaceas that solve all the world's problems and mental health issues. They are catalysts for patients to embark on a journey and have an experience that they can then transition back into their normal life. Integration is going to be a key component of that. Therapy sessions afterwards in the weeks and months following. This is not a one and done, uh, but it is what we think one of the most innovative approaches to mental health uh, in, 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 the, in the last 25 years. What has the conversation with investors been like and how has that evolved even over the last five years? Because, again, bringing this to market, getting investment from investors, I just wonder whether even just the last year and what we've been through perhaps is, has changed people's mindsets about MindMed. Well, last year, I think the horns on my head have gone away. Uh, when I first Congratulations. Into <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when I first walked into Sand Hill Road in, in Silicon Valley, you know, two and a half, three years ago, Nobody wanted to touch this. We were persona yeah. non grata, we were laughed out of rooms. Um, but I think, you know, COVID-19 has really put mental health in perspective. And if psychedelics can be the solution to mental health, then Wall Street and, and institutional investors are waking up that we just, as a society, have not allocated capital in a proper manner. We spend three and a half trillion dollars a year on, on health care in the United States. Less than 10 percent of that is allocated towards behavioral health, which can have as a big impact on your body as as your physical health. So I think what investors are understanding and now with Nasdaq accepting us, this industry is growing up and it's not necessarily a fringe investment theme anymore. This is going mainstream. Define what's different about what you're trying to do here versus I think some people here again will be listening to this and making a comparison with cannabis. You're not hoping mm. for future deregulation and able and an ability to, to take these medicines or use them. What you're looking for is actual medicines that have FDA approval that can then be adopted by physicians. We're looking for evidence based clinical trials that go through the one way that you make a medicine on the market in the United States, and that's right. the FDA pathway. And in order to do that, we have to, we have to do some work. This is not gonna be a quick process. This will take time. But once we can eventually, one day when the FDA uh, 
wants to make a decision on an approval, it will be available in all 50 states. That's vastly different than anything that happened in the cannabis space. And so this is really a mental health play. This is not about making your Burning Man experience uh, a better experience. We're interested in treating mental health. How far away are we from that, from actually having drugs with FDA approval on the market that people are using, assuming the trials that I know you're already starting and engaged in go mm. well? I think we're three to five years away before you see a psychedelic on the market. Um, there's multiple groups working on it. We are one of them. Uh, there, there are, this is a whole new field. One of the, you know, a lot of people focus on the trials, and that's important because we need to prove that something is safe and effective. But the other thing that we need to work on as a company and as an industry is to make these medicines accessible. We don't want to make a therapy that's only available on Fifth Avenue. That doesn't help the problem. These need to be accessible in all disenfranchised communities across America. 60% of U.S. counties don't actually have a psychiatrist. So MindMed is looking at how can we scale therapy and psychedelic-assisted therapy through technology because ultimately, I believe, scaling it is the blockbuster drug. What's the key and what's going to be the biggest challenge? Comes back to that. There are just very few psychiatrists in this country. We don't have mental health infrastructure. Yeah. We need to re-engineer and rebuild that, and we need to do it now more than ever this, you know, COVID-19 has just wreaked havoc on our mental health. And I think the lingering effects of mental health are going to be bigger than, than what, what happened during the pandemic. And that's really sad. I couldn't agree more with you. And it's not just about America. It's all over the world. JR, we'll set you loose on the entire healthcare system here, though, in the interim. JR, stay in touch, please. And uh, keep us updated on your progress. Founder and co-CEO of MindMed there. Thank you. You're watching First Move. More to come. first move when the world physically paused for the pandemic the transportation industry began to reimagine the ways in which we move this week cnn's bianca nabilo is exploring how technology is playing a pivotal role in the future of travel she visited one of london's busiest train stations to see how a tech startup is working to rebuild trust in public transport with travel slowly starting to build back up in the uk tech startup OpenSpace are hoping their digital twin technology can help put people first in the way stations like St Pancras International operate. But how does a virtual train station actually work? We first make a copy of the physical building by scanning the building and from that we plan a monitoring infrastructure that counts and tracks people locally. That information is then stored on our servers and our algorithm processes that information. In layman's terms, using anonymized bird's eye camera footage, the open space technology can track and simulate the way the public interacts with the building, which routes they favor from one platform to another where the bottlenecks form, and crucially for this era, the areas where social distancing will be difficult. The COVID pandemic has given a new relevance to this technology. When you were designing it, did you have any idea that it could have this application? The pandemic has very much 
change the problem that the operators have to deal with. It is not so much overcapacity or large number of people um, using an asset. It's about bringing customer back to the infrastructure, building back confidence. With all this modeling at your fingertips every day, can you anticipate how design might change to adapt to human behavior? I think one of the um, key opportunities is for the building to adapt to the experience. The building should fundamentally encourage and reinforce the experience, yes. A building is a bit like um, a living um, entity, you know. It experiences different behaviors, different patterns of movement in the morning, in the evening, uh, in the winter, in the summer. So it's for the building, the built environment, becoming more dynamic and responsive to the needs of people. Okay, and that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.